0: Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily recording that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Today we are reading chapters 5 to 10 of The Life and Achievements of Don Quixote de L.A. Mancha. Don Quixote is a Spanish epic novel by Miguel de Cervantes. Originally published in two parts, in 1605 and 1615, its full title is The Ingenious Gentleman Don Quixote of La Mancha. A founding work of Western literature, it is often labeled as the first modern novel and one of the greatest works ever written. Don Quixote is also one of the most translated books in the world. If you enjoy our program. Please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account, ZZZ underscore media underscore podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the sleep channel on Spotify. Chapter 5 A Further Account of Our knight's Misfortunes Don Quixote perceiving that he was not able to stir, resolved to have recourse to his usual remedy, which was to bethink himself what passage in his books might afford him some comfort, and presently his frenzy brought to his remembrance the story of Baldwin and the Marquis of Mantua, when Charlot left the former wounded on the mountain, a story learned and known by little children not unknown to young men and women celebrated and even believed by the old and yet not a job more authentic than the miracles of Muhammad. This seemed to him as if made on purpose for his present circumstances and therefore he fell rolling and tumbling up and down expressing the greatest pain and resentment and breathing out with a languishing voice the same complaints which the wounded knight of the wood is said to have made. Alas, where are you, lady dear, that for my will you do not moan, you little know what ails me here, or are to me disloyal grown. Thus he went on with the lamentations in that romance, till he came to these verses, O thou, my uncle and my prince, Marquis of Mantua, noble lord. When kind fortune so ordered it that a plowman who lived in the same village and near his house happened to pass by as he came from the mill with a sack of wheat. The fellow seeing a man lie at his full length on the ground asked him who he was and why he made such a sad complaint. Don Quixote, whose distempered brain presently represented to him the countryman as the Marquis of Mantua, his imaginary uncle, made him no answer but went on with the romance. The fellow stared. Much amazed to hear a man talk such unaccountable stuff, and taking off the visor of his helmet, broken all to pieces with blows bestowed upon it by the mule driver, he wiped off the dust that covered his face, and presently knew the gentleman. Master Kixada, cried he, for so he was properly called when he had the right use of his senses, and had not yet from a sober gentleman transformed himself into a wandering knight. How came you in this condition? But the other continued his romance, and made no answers to all the questions the countryman put to him, but what followed in course in the book, which the good man perceiving, he took off the battered adventurer's armor as well as he could, and fell a-searching for his wounds, but finding no sign of blood or any other hurt, he endeavored to set him upon his legs, and at last, with a great deal of trouble, he heaved him upon his own ass, as being the more easy and gentle carriage. He also got all the knight's arms together, not leaving behind so much as the splinters of his lance, and having tied them up and laid them on Lusinante, which he took by the bridle and his ass by the halter, he led them all towards the village and trudged on foot himself while he reflected on the extravagances which he heard Don Quixote utter. Nor was the Don himself less melancholy, for he felt himself so bruised and battered that he could hardly sit on the ass, and now and then he breathed such grievous sighs, as seemed to pierce the very skies, which moved his compassionate neighbor once more to entreat him to declare to him the cause of his grief, so he bethought himself of the Morabinderas, whom Rodrigo de Narvaez, Alcade of Intecura, took and carried prisoner to his castle so that when the husbandman asked him how he did and what ailed him, he answered word for word as the prisoner of Benderes replied to Rodrigo de Narvaez in the Diana of George de Montemere where that adventure is related, applying it so properly to his purpose that the countryman wished himself any with him within the hearing of such strange nonsense and being now fully convinced that his neighbor's brains were turned, he made all the haste he could to the village to be rid of him. Don Quixote in the meantime thus went on, you must know, Don Rodrigo de Narvaez, that this beautiful Zarifa, of whom I gave you an account, is at present the most lovely Dulcinea del Toboso, for whose sake I have done, still do, and will achieve the most famous deeds of chivalry that ever were, are, or ever shall be seen in the universe. Good sir, replied the husbandman. I am not Don Rodrigo de Narvaez, nor the Marquis of Mantua, but Pedro Alonso by name, your worship's neighbor, nor are you Baldwin, nor Benderes, but only that worthy gentleman, Senor Quixada. I know very well who I am, answered Don Quixote, and what's more, I know, that I may not only be the persons I have named, but also the twelve peers of France. Nay, and the nine were these all in one, since my achievements will outrival not only the famous exploits which made any of them singly illustrious, but all their mighty deeds accumulated together. Thus discoursing, they at last got near their village about sunset, but the countryman stayed at some distance till it was dark, that the distressed gentleman might not be seen so scurvily mounted, and then he led him home to his own house, which he found in great confusion. The curate and the barber of the village, both of them Don Quixote's intimate acquaintances, happened to be there at that juncture, as also the housekeeper, who was arguing with them. What do you think, pray, good Dr. Perez, said she, for this was the curate's name. What do you think of my master's mischance? Neither he, nor his horse, nor his target, lance, nor armor, have been seen these six days. What shall I do, wretch that I am? I dare lay my life, and it is as sure as I am a living creature, that those cursed books of errantry, which he used to be always poring upon, have set him beside his senses, for now I remember I have heard him often mutter to himself that he had a mind to turn knight errant and ramble up and down the world to find out adventures. His niece added, addressing herself to the barber, you must know, Mr. Nicholas, that many times my uncle would read you those unconscionable books of disventures for 8 and 40 hours together. Then away he would throw his book, and drawing his sword, he would fall fencing against the walls, and when he had tired himself with cutting and slashing, he would cry he had killed for giants as big as any steeples, and the sweat which he put himself into, he would say was the blood of the wounds he had received in the fight then would he swallow a huge jug of cold water, and presently he would be as quiet and as well as ever he was in his life, and he said that this same water was a sort. A precious drink brought him by the sage's wife, a great magician and his special friend. Now, it is I who am the cause of all this mischief, for not giving you timely notice of my uncle's raving that you might have put a stop to it, here it was too late, and have burnt all these excommunicated books, for there are, I do not know how many of them, that deserve as much to be burnt as those of the rankest heretics. I am of your mind, said the curate, and verily tomorrow shall not pass over before I have fairly brought them to a trial, and condemned them to the flames, that they may not minister occasion to such as would read them to be perverted after the example of my good friend. The countryman, who, with Don Quixote, stood without, listening to all this discourse, now perfectly understood the cause of his neighbor's disorder, and, without any more ado, he called out, open the gates there, for the Lord Baldwin, and the Lord Marquis of Mantua, who is coming sadly wounded, and for the Moorish Laura Benderas, whom the valorous Don Rodrigo de Narvaez, Alcade of Antecura, brings prisoner. At which words, they all got out of doors, and the one finding it to be her uncle, and the other to be her master, and the rest their friend, who had not yet alighted from the ass, because indeed he was not able, they all ran to embrace him, to whom Don Quixote, forbear, said he, for I am sorely hurt, by reason that my horse failed me, carry me to bed, and, if it be possible, let the enchantress Reganda be sent for to cure my wounds. Now, quoth the housekeeper, see whether I did not guess right, on which foot my master halted, come, get to bed, I beseech you, and, my life for yours, we will take care to cure you without sending for that same erganda. A hearty curse, I say, light upon those books of chivalry that have put you in this pickle. Whereupon they carried him to his bed, and searched for his wounds, but could find none, and then he told them he was only bruised, having had a dreadful fall from his horse Rosinante while he was fighting ten giants, the most outrageous and audacious upon the face of the earth. Ho, oh, oh, ho! cried the curate, are there giants too in the dance? Nay, then, we will have them all burned by tomorrow night. Then they asked the Don a thousand questions, but to every one he made no other answer but that they should give him something to eat, and then leave him to his repose. They complied with his desires, and then the curate informed himself at large in what condition the countryman had found him, and having had a full account of every particular, as also the knight's extravagant talk, both when the fellow found him, and as he brought him home, this increased the curate's desire of effecting what he had resolved to do next morning, at which time he called upon his friend Mr. Nicholas
1: the Barber and went with him to Don Quixote's house underscore 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 chapter 6. Of the
0: pleasant and curious scrutiny which the curate and the barber made of the library of our ingenious gentleman. The knight was yet asleep when the curate came, attended by the barber, and desired his niece to let him have the key of the room where her uncle kept his books, the author of his woes. She readily consented, and so in they went, and the housekeeper with them. There they found above an hundred large volumes neatly bound and a good number of small ones. As soon as the housekeeper had spied them out, she ran out of the study and returned immediately with a holy water pot and a sprinkler. Here, doctor, cried she, pray sprinkle every cranny and corner in the room, lest there should lurk in it some one of the many sorcerers these books swarm with, who might chance to bewitch us, for the ill will we bear them in going about to send them out of the world. The curate could not forbear smiling at the good woman's simplicity, and desired the barber to reach him the books one by one, that he might peruse the title pages, for perhaps he might find some among them that might not deserve this fate. Oh, by no means, cried the niece, spare none of them, they all help, somehow or other, to crack my uncle's brain. I fancy we had best throw them all out of the window in the yard and lay them together in a heap, and then set them on fire, or else carry them into the backyard, and there make a pile of them, and burn them, and so the smoke will offend nobody. The housekeeper joined with her, so eagerly bent were both upon the destruction of those poor innocents, but the curate would not condescend to those irregular proceedings, and resolved first to read at least the title page of every book. The first that Mr. Nicholas put into his hands was Amatis de Gaulle in four volumes. There seems to be some mystery in this book's being the first taken down, cried the curate, as soon as he had looked upon it, for I have heard it is the first book of night errantry that ever was printed in Spain and the model of all the rest, and therefore I am of opinion that, as the first teacher and author of so pernicious a sect, it ought to be condemned to the fire without mercy. I beg a reprieve for him, cried the barber, for I have been told tis the best book that has been written in that kind, and therefore, as the only good thing of that sort, it may deserve a pardon. Well then, replied the curate, for this time let him have it. Let's see that other, which lies next to him. These, said the barber, are the exploits of Esplandion, the son of Amenas to Gaul. Verily, Said the curate, the father's goodness shall not excuse the want of it in the son. Here good mistress housekeeper, open that window and throw it into the yard and let it serve as a foundation to that pile where to set a blazing presently. She was not slack in her obedience and thus poor Donna Esplandian was sent headlong into the yard there patiently to wait the time of punishment. To the next, cried the curate. This, said the barber, is Amatis of Greece, and I'm of opinion that all those that stand on this side are of the same family. Then let them all be sent packing into the yard, replied the curate. They were delivered to the housekeeper accordingly, and many they were, and to save herself the labor of carrying them downstairs, she fairly sent them flying out at the window. What overgrown piece of lumber have we here? cried the curate. Olive and Delora returned the barber. The same author wrote The Garden of Flowers, and, to deal ingeniously with you, I cannot tell which of the two books has most truth in it, or, to speak more properly, less lies, but this I know for certain that he shall march into the backyard, like a nonsensical arrogant blockhead as he is. The next, cried the barber, is Florismar of How? My lord Florismart, is he here, replied the curate, nay, then truly he shall e'en follow the rest to the yard, in spite of his wonderful birth and incredible adventures, for his rough, dull, and insipid style deserves no better usage. Come toss him into the yard, and this other too, good mistress. Here's the noble don platter, cried the barber, tis an old book replied the curate, and I can think of nothing in him that deserves a grain of pity, away with him, without any more words, and down he went accordingly. Another book was opened, and it proved to be the Knight of the Cross. The holy title, cried the curate, might in some measure atone for the badness of the book, but then, as the saying is, the devil lurks behind the cross. To the flames with him. Then opening another volume, he found it to be and Oliva, and the next to that Palmerin of England. Ah, have I found you, cried the curate. Here take that Oliva, let him be torn to pieces, then burnt, and his ashes scattered in the air. but let Palmerin of England be preserved as a singular relic of antiquity and let such a costly box be made for him as Alexander found among the spoils of Darius, which he devoted to enclose Homer's works, for I must tell you, neighbor, that book deserves particular respect for two things, first, for its own excellencies, and, secondly, for the sake of its author, who is said to have been a learned king of Portugal. Then all the adventures of the castle of Marigarda were well and artfully managed, the dialogue very courtly and clear and the decorum strictly observed equal character with equal propriety and judgment. Therefore, master Nicholas continued. He with submission to your better advice. This and Emmaus de Gaulle shall be exempted from the fire and let all the rest be condemned without any further inquiry or examination. By no means, I beseech you returned the barber. For this which I have in my hands is the famous Don Bellianis. Truly, cried the curate, he, with his second, third, and fourth parts, had need of a dose of rhubarb to purge his excessive collar. Besides, his castle of fame should be demolished, and a heap of other rubbish removed in order to which I give my vote to grant them the benefit of a reprieve, and as they shew signs of amendment, so shall mercy or justice be used towards them. In the meantime, neighbor, take them into custody, and keep them safe at home, but let none be permitted to converse with them. Content, cried the barber, and to save himself the labor of looking on any more books of that kind, he bid the housekeeper take all the great volumes, and throw them into the yard. This was not spoken to one stupid or deaf, but to one who had a greater mind to be burning them than weaving the finest and largest web, so that laying hold of no less than eight volumes at once, she presently made them leap towards the place of execution. But what shall we do with all these smaller books that are left? Said the barber. Certainly, replied the curate, these cannot be books of errantry they are too small, you will find they are only poets. And so opening one, it happened to be the Diana of Montemayor, which made him say, believing all the rest to be of that stamp, these do not deserve to be punished like the others, for they neither have done, nor can do, that mischief which those stories of chivalry have done, being generally ingenious books, that can do nobody any prejudice. Oh, good sir, cried the niece, burn them with the rest, I beseech you, for should my uncle get cured of his night-errant frenzy, and betake himself to the reading of these books, we should have him turn shepherd, and so wander through the woods and fields, nay, and what would be worse yet, turn poet, which they say is a catching and incurable disease. The gentlewoman is in the right, said the curate and it will not be amiss to remove that stumbling block out of our friend's way. And since we began with the Diana of I am of opinion we ought not to burn it, but only take out that part of it which treats of the magician Felicia and the enchanted water as also all the longer poems and let the work escape with its prose and the honor of being the first of that kind. Here, quoth the barber, I have a book called The Ten Books of the Fortunes of Love, by Anthony de la Freco, a Sardinian poet. Now we have got a prize, cried the curate, I do not think since Apollo was Apollo, the Muses' Muses, and the Poets' Poets, there ever was a more humorous, more whimsical book. Of all the works of the kind commend me to this, for in its weight is certainly the best and most singular that ever was published, and he that never read it may safely think he never in his life read anything that was pleasant. With that he laid it aside with extraordinary satisfaction, and the barber went on, The next said he is the shepherd of Philida. He's no shepherd, returned the curate, but a very discreet courtier, keep him as a precious jewel. Here's a beggar, cried the barber, called the treasure of divers' poems. Had there been less of it, said the curate, it would have been more esteemed. Tis fit the book should be pruned and cleared of some inferior things that encumber and deform it, keep it, however, because the author is my friend and for the sake of his other more heroic and lofty productions. What's the next book? The Galatea of Miguel de Cervantes, replied the barber that cervantes has been my intimate acquaintance these many years cried the curate and i know he has been more conversant with misfortunes than with poetry his book indeed as i don't know what that looks like a good design he aims at something but concludes nothing therefore we must stay for the second part which he has promised us perhaps he may make us amends and obtain a full pardon which is deny him for the present, till that time keep him close prisoner at your house. I will, quoth the barber, but see, I have here three more for you, the Araucana of Don Alonso de Ursula, the Osterada of Juan Rafo, a magistrate of Córdova, and the Monserado of Christopher de Verse, a Valencian poet. These, cried the curate, are the best heroic poems we have in Spanish and may vie with the most celebrated of Italy, reserve them as the most valuable performances which Spain has to boast of in poetry. At last the curate grew so tired with prying into so many volumes that he ordered all the rest to be burnt at a venture. But the barber shoot him one which he had opened by chance ere the dreadful sentence was passed. Truly, said the curate, who saw by the title it was the tears of Angelica, I should have wept myself had I caused such a book to share the condemnation of the rest, for the author was not only one of the best poets in Spain but in the whole world and translated some of Ovid's fables with extraordinary
1: success underscore 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 underscore
0: chapter 7. Don Quixote's Second Sally in Quest of Adventures Full fifteen days did our knight remain quietly at home, without betraying the least sign of his desire to renew his rambling, during which time there passed a great deal of pleasant discourse between him and his two friends, the curate and the barber, while he maintained that there was nothing the world stood so much in need of his knight's errand, wherefore he was resolved to revive the order in which disputes Mr. Curate sometimes contradicted him and sometimes submitted, for had he not now, and then given way to his fancies, there would have been no conversing with him. In the meantime, Don Quixote solicited one of his neighbors, a country laborer and honest fellow, though poor in purse as well as in brains, to become his squire. In short, the knight talked long to him, plied him with so many arguments, and made him so many fair promises that at last a poor silly clown consented to go along with him and be his squire. Among other inducements to entice him to do it willingly, Don Quixote forgot not to tell him that it was likely such an adventure would present itself, as might secure him the conquest of some island in the time that he might be picking up a straw or two, and then the squire might promise himself to be made governor of the place. Allured with these large promises, and many others, Sancho Panza, for that was the name of the fellow, forsook his wife and children to be his neighbor's squire. This done, Don Quixote made it his business to furnish himself with money, to which purpose, selling one house, mortgaging another, and losing by all, he at last got a pretty good sum together. He also borrowed a target of a friend and having patched up his headpiece and beaver as well as he could, he gave his squire notice of the day and hour when he intended to set out, that he also might furnish himself with what he thought necessary, but, above all, he charged him to provide himself with a wallet, which Sancho promised to do, telling him he would also take his ass along with him, which being a very good one, might be a great ease to him, for he was not used to travel much, eh? Foot. The mentioning of the ass made the noble knight pause a while. He mused and pondered whether he had ever read of any knight-errant whose squire used to ride upon an ass, but he could not remember any precedent for it. However, he gave him leave at last to bring his ass, hoping to mount him more honorably with the first opportunity by unhorsing the next discourteous knight he should meet. He also furnished himself with linen, and as many other necessaries as he could conveniently carry, according to the innkeeper's advice. Which being done, Sancho Panza, without bidding either his wife or children goodbye, and Don Quixote, without taking any more notice of his housekeeper or of his niece, stole out of the village one night, not so much as suspected by anybody, and made such haste that by break of day they thought themselves out of reach should they happen to be pursued. As for Sancho Panza, he rode like a patriarch with his canvas knapsack or wallet and his leathern bottle having a huge desire to see himself governor of the island which his master had promised him. As they jogged on, I beseech your worship, Sir Knight-Erin quoth Sancho to his master be sure you don't forget what you promised me about the island, for I dare say I shall make shift to govern it, let it be never so big. You must know, friend Sancho, replied Don Quixote, that it has been the constant practice of knights errant in former ages to make their squires governors of the islands or kingdoms they conquered. Now I am resolved to outdo my predecessors, for whereas sometimes other knights delayed rewarding their squires till they were grown old and worn out with services, and then put them off with some title either of count or at least marquis of some valley or province of great or small extent. Now, if thou and I do but live, it may happen that before we have passed six days together, I may conquer some kingdom, having many other kingdoms annexed to its imperial crown, and this would fall out most luckily for thee, for then would I presently crown thee king of one of them. Nor do thou imagine this to be a mighty matter, for so strange accidents and revolutions, so sudden and so unforeseen, attend the profession of chivalry, that I might easily give thee a great deal more than I have promised. Why should this come to pass? Quoth Sancho Panza, and I be made a king by some such miracle as your worship says, then Mary Gutierrez would be at least a queen, and my children infantas and princes, and like your worship. Who doubts of that? cried Don Quixote. I doubt of it, replied Sancho Panza, for I cannot help believing that though it should rain kingdoms down upon the face of the earth, not one of them would sit well upon Mary Gutierrez's head, for I must needs tell you, she's not worth two brass jacks to make a queen of. No, Countess would be better for her, and that, too, will be as much as she can handsomely manage. Recommend the matter to Providence, return Don Quixote, twill be sure to give what
1: is most expedient for thee underscore 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 chapter 8. Of the good success which the valorous
0: Don Quixote had in the most terrifying and incredible adventure of the windmills, with other transactions worthy to be transmitted to posterity. And as they were thus discoursing, they discovered some thirty or forty windmills in the plain, and as soon as the knight had spied them, fortune, cried he, directs our affairs better than we could have wished. Look yonder, Sancho, there are at least thirty outrageous giants. Whom I intend to encounter, and having deprived them of life, we will begin to enrich ourselves with their spoils, for they are a lawful prize, and the extirpation of that cursed brood will be an acceptable service to heaven. What giants? Quoth Sancho Panza. Those whom thou seest yonder, answered Don Quixote. With their long-extended arms, some of that detestive race have arms of so immense a size that sometimes they reach two leagues in length. Pray look better, sir, quoth Sancho, those things yonder are no giants, but windmills, and the arms are their sails, which being whirled about by the wind, make the mill go. "'Tis a sign," cried Don Quixote, thou art but little acquainted with adventures. I tell thee, they are giants, and therefore, if thou art afraid, go aside and say thy prayers, for I am resolved to engage in combat with them all. This said, he clapped spurs to his horse, without giving ear to his squire, who bawled out to him and assured him that they were windmills and no giants, but he was so fully possessed with a strong conceit of the contrary, that he did not so much as hear his squire nor was he sensible of what they were although he was already very near them stand cowards cried he as loud as he could stand your ground ignoble creatures and fly not basely from a single knight who dares encounter you all at the same time the wind rising the millsails began to move which when don quixote spied base miscreants cried he though you move more arms than the giant braherius you shall pay for your arrogance. He most devoutly recommended himself to his lady Dulcinea, imploring her assistance in this perilous adventure, and so covering himself with his shield, and couching his lance, he rushed with Rosinante's utmost speed upon the first windmill he could come at, and running his lance into the sail, the wind whirled it about with such swiftness, that the rapidity of the motion presently broke the lance into shivers and hurled away both knight and horse along with it till down he fell rolling a good way off in the field sancho panza ran as fast as his ass could drive to help his master whom he found lying and not able to stir did not i give your worship fair warning cried he did not i tell you they were windmills and that nobody could think otherwise unless he had also windmills in his head peace friend Sancho, replied Don Quixote, there is nothing so subject to the inconstancy of fortune as war. I am verily persuaded that cursed necromancer Freston, who carried away my study and my books, has transformed these giants into windmills to deprive me of the honor of the victory, such is his inveterate malice against me, but in the end, all his pernicious wiles and stratagems shall prove ineffectual against the prevailing edge of my sword. So let it be, replied Sancho. And heating him up again upon his legs, once more the knight mounted poor Rosinante, who was half disjointed with his fall. This adventure was the subject of their discourse as they made the best of their way towards the Pass of Lapice, for Don Quixote took that road. Believing he could not miss an adventures in one so mightily frequented. Sancho desired him now to consider that it was high time to go to dinner, but his master answered him that he might eat whenever he pleased, as for himself, he was not yet disposed to do so. Sancho, having obtained leave, fixed himself as orderly as he could upon his ass, and taking some victuals out of his wallet, fell to munching lustily. And ever and anon he lifted his bottle to his nose, and fetched such hearty pulls that it would have made the best pampered vintner in Maladigiri to have seen him. In fine, they passed that night under some trees, from one of which Don Quixote tore a withered branch, which in some sort was able to serve him for a lance, and to this he fixed the head or spear of his broken lance. But he did not sleep all that night keeping his thoughts intent on his dear Dulcinea in imitation of what he had read in books of chivalry where the knights passed their time without sleep in forests and deserts wholly taken up with entertaining thoughts of their absent ladies. The next day they went on directly towards the pass of Lapice, which they discovered about 3 o'clock. When they came near it, here it is, brother Sancho, said Don Quixote, that we may, as it were, thrust our arms up to the very elbows in that which we call adventures. But let me give thee one necessary caution, know that though thou shouldst see me in the greatest extremity of danger, thou must not offer to draw thy sword in my defense, unless thou findest me assaulted by base plebeians and vile scoundrels, for in such a case thou mayest assist thy master, but if those with whom I am fighting are knights, thou must not do it, for the laws of chivalry do not allow thee to encounter a knight till thou art one thyself. Never fear, quoth Sancho, I'll be sure to obey your worship in that, I'll warn you, for I have ever loved peace and quietness, and never cared to thrust myself into frays and quarrels. As they were talking, they spied coming towards them two monks of the Order of Saint Benedict mounted on two dromedaries, for the mules on which they rode were so high and stately that they seemed little less. After them came a coach, with four or five men on horseback and two muleteers on foot. There proved to be in the coach a Biscayan lady who was going to Seville to meet her husband that was there in order to embark for the Indies to take possession of a considerable post. Scarce had the dawn perceived the monks, who were not of the same company, though they went the same way, but he cried to his squire, either I am deceived, or this will prove the most famous adventure that ever was known, for without all question those two black things that move towards us must be necromancers that are carrying away by force some princess in that coach, and tis my duty to prevent so great an injury. I fear me this will prove a worse job than the windmills, quoth Sancho, take warning, sir, and do not be led away a second time. I have already told thee, Sancho, replied Don Quixote, thou art miserably ignorant in matters of adventures, what I say is true, and thou shalt find it so presently. This said, he spurred on his horse, and posted himself just in the midst of the road where the monks were to pass. And when they came within hearing, he immediately cried out in a loud and haughty tone, Release those high-born princesses whom you are violently conveying away in the coach, or else prepare to meet with instant death as the just punishment of your deeds. The monk stopped, no less astonished at the figure than at the expressions of the speaker. Sir Knight, cried they, we are no such persons as you are pleased to term us. But religious men of the order of Saint Benedict that travel about our affairs and are wholly ignorant whether or no there are any princesses carried away by force in that coach. I am not to be deceived, replied Don Quixote. I know you well enough, perfidious caitiffs. And immediately, without waiting their reply, he set spurs to Rosinante and ran so furiously, with his lance couched, against the first monk. That if he had not prudently flung himself to the ground the knight would certainly have laid him either dead or grievously wounded. The other observing this clapped his heels to his mule's flanks and scoured over the plain as if he had been running a race with the wind. Sancho no sooner saw the monk fall but he leapt off his ass and running to him began to strip him immediately but the two muleteers who waited on the monks came up to him and asked why he offered to strip him. Sancho told them that this belonged to him as lawful plunder, being the spoils won in battle by his lord and master Don Quixote. The fellows, with whom there was no jesting, not knowing what he meant by his spoils in battle, and seeing Don Quixote at a good distance in deep discourse by the side of the coach, fell both upon poor Sancho, threw him down, tore his beard from his chin, trampled on him, and there left him lying without breath or motion. In the meanwhile the monk, scared out of his wits and as pale as a ghost, got upon his mule again as fast as he could, and spurred after his friend, who stayed for him at a distance, expecting the issue of this strange adventure. But being unwilling to stay to see the end of it, they made the best of their way, making more signs of the cross than if the devil had been posting after them. Don Quixote was all this while engaged with the lady in the coach. Lady, cried he, your discretion is now at liberty to dispose of your beautiful self as you please, for the presumptuous arrogance of those who attempted to enslave your person lies prostrate in the dust overthrown by this arm, and that you may not be at a loss for the name of your deliverer, no I am called Don Quixote de la Mancha, by profession a knight-errant and adventurer, captive to that peerless beauty Donna Dulcinea del Toboso, nor do I desire any other recompense for the service I have done you, but that you return to Toboso to present yourself to that lady, and let her know what I have done to purchase your deliverance.
1: So saying he bade her courteously farewell, and pursued his way. Underscore 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 underscore. Underscore, 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 Underscore. Chapter 9.
0: What Passed Between Don Quixote and the goatherds? After traveling the remainder of the day without further adventure, they came to a place where some goat herds had set up some small huts, and there they concluded to take up their lodging that night. This was as great a mortification to Sancho, who was altogether for a good town as it was a pleasure to his master who was for sleeping in the open fields and who believed that, as often as he did it, he confirmed his title to knighthood by a new act of possession. The knight was very courteously received by the Goherds, and as for Sancho, after he had set up Rosinante in his ass as well as he could, he presently repaired to the attractive smell of some pieces of kids' flesh which stood boiling in a kettle over the fire. The hungry squire would immediately have tried whether they were fit to be removed out of the kettle into the stomach, but was not put to the trouble, for the goat herds took them off the fire and spread some sheepskins on the ground and soon got their rural feast ready. And cheerfully invited his master and him to partake of what they had. Next, with some coarse compliment after the country way, they desired Don Quixote to sit down on a trough with the bottom upwards, and then six of them, who were all that belonged to that fold, squatted them down round the skins, while Sancho stood to wait upon his master and gave him drink in a horn cup, which the cowherds used. But he seeing his man stand behind, said to him, Sancho, it is my pleasure that thou sit thee down by me in the company of these good people, that there be no difference now observed between thee and me, thy natural lord and master, for it may be said of nyirantry as of love that it makes all things equal. I thank your worship, cried Sancho, but yet I must needs own, had I put a good deal of meat before me, I'd eat it as well or rather better, standing, and by myself, than if I sat by an emperor, and, to deal plainly and truly with you, I have rather munch a crust of brown bread and an onion in a corner, without any more ado or ceremony, than feed upon turkey at another man's table, where one is fain to sit mincing and chewing his meat an hour together, drink little, be always wiping his fingers and his mouth, and never dare to cough or sneeze, Though he has never so much a mind to it, nor do a many things which a body may do freely by oneself, therefore, good sir, change those tokens of your kindness, which I have a right to by being your worshipped squire, into something that may do me more good. As for these same honors, I heartily thank you as much as if I had accepted them, but yet I give up my right to them from this time to the world's end. Talk no more, replied Don Quixote, but sit thee down, for the humble shall be exalted, and so pulling him by the arms, he forced him to sit by him. All this while the goatherds said nothing, but stared upon their guests, who swallowed whole luncheons as big as their fists with a mighty appetite. A young fellow, who used to bring them provisions from the next village, happened to come while they were eating, and addressing himself to the goatherds, hark ye, friends, said he, do you hear the news? What news? Cried one of the company. That fine shepherd and scholar Chrysostom died this morning, answered the other, and they say it was for love of Marcella, daughter of William the rich, that goes up and down the country in the habit of a shepherdess. For Marcella, cried one of the goat herds. I say for her, replied the fellow, and what is more, it is reported he has ordered by his will they should bury him in the fields like any heathen moor, hard by the cork tree fountain, where they say he first saw her. Nay, he has likewise ordered many other strange things to be done, which the clergy cannot allow of, while Ambrose, the other scholar, who likewise apparelled himself like a shepherd, is resolved to have his friend Chrysostom's will fulfilled in everything, just as he has ordered it. It is thought that Ambrose and his friends will carry the day, and tomorrow morning he is to be buried in great state where I told you, I fancy it will be worth seeing, and I intend to go and see it, even though I should not get back again tomorrow. We will all go, cried the goat herds, and cast lots who shall tarry to look after the goats. Well said, Pedro, cried one of the goat herds, but as for casting of lots, I will save you that labor, for I will stay myself, not so much out of kindness to you neither, or one of curiosity, as because of the thorn in my toe that will not let me go. Don Quixote, who heard all this, entreated Pedro to tell him who the deceased was, and also to give him a sure account of the shepherdess. Peter answered that all he knew of the matter was that the deceased was a wealthy gentleman who had been several years at the University of Salamanca and came home mightily improved in his learning. Within some few months after he had left the university, on a certain morning we saw him come dressed for all the world like a shepherd and driving his flock, having laid down the long gown which he used to wear as a scholar. At the same time one Ambrose, who had been his fellow scholar, also took upon him to go like a shepherd and keep him company which we all did not a little marvel at. Somewhat before that time Chrysostom's father died and left him a large estate and in truth he deserved it all for he was bountiful to the poor, a friend to all honest people and had a face like any blessing. At last it came to be known, that the reason of his altering his garb in that fashion was only that he might go up and down after that shepherdess Marcella, whom our comrade told you of before, for he was fallen mightily in love with her. And now I will tell you who this lady is. You must know that there lived us one William, a yeoman, who was richer yet than Chrysostom's father, now he had no child but a daughter whose mother was as good a woman as ever went upon two legs, methinks I see her yet standing afore me with that blessed face of hers. She was an excellent housewife, and did a deal of good among the poor, for which, I believe, she is at this very time in paradise. Alas, her death broke old William's heart, he soon followed her, poor man, and left all to his little daughter, that Marcella by name, giving charge of her to her uncle, the parson of her parish. When she came to be 14 or 15 years of age, no man set his eyes on her that did not bless heaven for having made her so handsome, so that most men fell in love with her and were ready to run mad for her. All this while her uncle kept her very close, yet the report of her great beauty and wealth spread far and near insomuch that almost all the young men in her town asked her of her uncle, nay there flocked whole droves of suitors and the very best in the country too who all begged and sued and teased her uncle to let them have her but though he'd have been glad to have got fairly rid of her yet would not he advise or marry her against her will for he's a good man i'll say that for him and a true christian every inch of him and scorns to keep her from marrying to make a benefit of her estate and to his praise be it spoken he has been mainly commended for it more than once when the people of our parish meet together. For I would have you know, Sir Aaron, that here in the country and in our little towns, there is not the least thing can be said or done, but people will talk and find fault. Indeed, the parson must be essentially good who could bring his whole parish to give him a good word. Thou art in the right, cried Don Quixote, and therefore go on, for the story is pleasant, and thou tellest it with a grace. May I never want God's grace, quoth Pedro, for that is most of the purpose. But for our parson, as I told you before, though he took care to let her know of all those proposals, yet would she never answer otherwise, but that she had no mind to wit as yet, as finding herself too young for the burden of wedlock. But behold, when we least dreamed of it, the coy lass must needs turn shepherdess, and neither her uncle, nor all those of the village who advised her against it, could persuade her, but away she went to the fields to keep her own sheep with the other young lasses of the town. But then it was ten times worse, for no sooner was she seen abroad, why cannot tell how many spruce gallants, both gentlemen and rich farmers, changed their garb for love of her, and followed her up and down in shepherd’s guise. One of them, as I have told you, was this same Chrysostome, who now lies dead, of whom it is said he not only loved, but worshipped her. In this way Marcella does more harm in this country than the plague would do, for her courteousness and fair looks draw on everybody to love her, but then her reserve and disdain break their hearts, and all they can do, poor wretches, is to make a heavy complaint and call her cruel, unkind, ungrateful and a world of such names, whereby they plainly show a sad condition they are in, were you but to stay here some time, you would hear these hills and valleys ring again with the doleful. Moans of those she has denied, who yet have not courage to give over following her. Here sighs one shepherd, there another moans, here is one singing doleful ditties, there another is wringing his hands and making woeful complaints. And all this while the hard-hearted Marcella never minds any one of them and does not seem to be the least concerned for them. We are all at a loss to know what will be the end of all this pride and coyness, and who shall be the happy man that shall at last succeed in taming her. Now, because there is nothing more certain than all this, I am the more apt to give credit to our Comrade has told us as to the occasion of Chrysostom's death and therefore I would needs have you go and see him laid in his grave tomorrow, which I believe will be worth your while, for he had many friends, and it is not half a lead to the place where it was his will to be buried. I intend to be there, answered Don Quixote, and in the meantime I return thee many thanks for the extraordinary satisfaction this story has afforded me. Chapter 10 A Continuation of the Story of Marcella Scarce had day begun to appear from the balconies of the east, when five of the goat herds got up, and having waked Don Quixote, asked him if he held to his resolution of going to the funeral, whither they were ready to bear him company. Thereupon the knight presently arose, and ordered Sancho to get ready immediately, which he did with all expedition, and then they set forwards. They had not gone a quarter of a league before they saw advancing out of a cross-path six shepherds clad in black skins, their heads crowned with garlands of cypress and bitter rose-bay-tree with long holly-staves in their hands. Two gentlemen on horseback, attended by three young lads on foot, followed them. As they drew near, they saluted one another civilly, and after the usual question, which way do you travel? They found they were all going the same way to see the funeral and so they all joined company. I fancy, Signor Vivaldo, said one of the gentlemen, addressing himself to the other, we shall not think our time misspent in going to see this famous funeral, for it must of necessity be very extraordinary according to the account which these men have given us of the dead shepherd and his murdering shepherdess. I am so far of your opinion, Answered Vivaldo, that I would not stay one day, but a whole week, rather than miss the sight. After this, Vivaldo asked the knight why he traveled so completely armed in so peaceable a country. My profession, answered the champion, does not permit me to ride otherwise. Luxurious feasts, sumptuous dresses, and downy ease were invented for effeminate courtiers, but labor, vigilance, and arms are the portion of those whom the world calls knights-errant, of which number have the honour to be one, though the most unworthy. He needed to say no more to satisfy them that his brains were out of order, however, that they might the better understand the nature of his folly, Vivaldo asked him what he meant by a knight-errant. Have you not read, then, cried Don Quixote, the annals and history of Britain, where recorded the famous deeds of King Arthur who, according to an ancient tradition in that kingdom, never died but was turned into a raven by enchantment and shall one day resume his former shape and recover his kingdom again? For which reason, since that time, the people of Great Britain dare not offer to kill a raven. After a great deal of conversation of this kind, the travelers were sufficiently convinced of Don Quixote's frenzy. Nor were they less surprised than were all those who had hitherto discovered so unaccountable a distraction in one who seemed a rational creature. However, Vivaldo, who was of a gay disposition, had no sooner made the discovery than he resolved to make the best advantage of it that the shortness of the way would allow him. Methinks, Sir Knight-Erend, said he, You have taken up one of the strictest and most mortifying professions in the world. I do not think, but that even a Carthusian friar has a better time of it than you have. The profession of the Carthusian answered Don Quixote may be as austere, but ours is perhaps hardly less beneficial to the world. We knights, like soldiers execute what they pray for and procure those benefits to mankind by the strength of our arms and at the hazard of our lives for which they only intercede nor do we do this sheltered from the injuries of the air but under no other roof than that of the wide heavens exposed to summer's scorching heat and winter's pinching cold however gentlemen do not imagine i would insinuate as if the profession of a knight errant was a state of perfection equal to that of a holy recluse i would only infer from what i have said and what i myself endure that ours without question is more laborious more subject to the discipline of heavy blows, to maceration, to the penance of hunger and thirst, and, in a word, to rags, to want, and misery. For if you find that some knights errant have at last, by their valor, been raised to thrones and empires, you may be sure it has been still at the expense of much sweat and blood. And had even those happier knights been deprived of those assisting sages and enchanters who helped them in all emergencies, they would have been strangely disappointed of their mighty expectations. I am of the same opinion, replied Vivaldo. But one thing I would ask, sir, since I understand it is so much the being of knight errantry to be in love, I presume you, who are of that profession, cannot be without a mistress. And therefore, if you do not set up for secrecy, give me leave to beg of you, in the name of all the company, that you will be pleased so far to oblige us as to let us know the name and quality of your lady, the place of her birth, and the charms of her person. For, without doubt, she cannot but esteem herself fortunate in being known to all the world to be the object of the wishes of a knight so accomplished as yourself. With that Don Quixote, Breathing out a deep sigh, I cannot tell, said he, whether this lovely enemy of my repose is the least affected with the world's being informed of her power over my heart. All I dare say, in compliance with your request is, that her name is Dulcinea, her country La Mancha, and Toboso the happy place which she honors with her residence. As for her quality, it cannot be less than princess, seeing she is my lady and my queen. Her beauty transcends all the united charms of her whole sex, even those chimerical perfections, which the hyperbolical imaginations of poets in love have assigned to their mistresses, cease to be incredible descriptions when applied to her, in whom all those miraculous endowments are most divinely centered. The curling locks of her bright flowing hair are her purest gold, her smooth forehead the Elysian plain, her brows are two celestial bows her eyes two glorious suns, her cheeks two beds of roses, her lips are coral, her teeth are pearl, her neck is alabaster, her breasts marble, her hands ivory, and smell would lose its whiteness near her bosom. As they went on in this and like discourse, they saw, upon the hollow road between the neighboring mountains, about twenty shepherds more, all accoutred in black skins, with garlands on their heads, which, as they afterwards perceived, were all of you or cypress, six of them carried a bier covered with several sorts of boughs and flowers, which one of the Govherts as being, those are they, cried he, that are carrying poor Chrysostom to his grave, and it was in yonder hollow that he gave, charge they should bury his corpse. This made them all double their pace, that they might get thither in time and so they arrived just as the bearers had set down the bier upon the ground and four of them had begun to open the ground with their spades at the foot of a rock. They all saluted each other courteously and condoled their mutual loss and then Don Quixote, with those who came with him, went to view the bier where they saw the dead body of a young man in shepherd's weeds all strewn over with flowers. The deceased seemed to be about 30 years old and dead as he was, it was easily perceived that both his face and shape were extraordinarily handsome. This doleful object so strangely filled all the company with sadness that not only the beholders but also the grave makers and the mourning shepherds remained a long time silent till at last one of the bearers addressing himself to one of the rest, look Ambrose cried he whether this be the place which Chrysostom meant, since you must needs have his will so punctually performed? This is the very place, answered the other, there it was that my unhappy friend many times told me the sad story of his cruel fortune, and there it was that he first saw that mortal enemy of mankind, there it was that he made the first discovery of his passion, no less innocent than violent, there it was that the relentless Marcella last denied, shunned him, and drove him to that extremity of sorrow and despair that hastened the sad catastrophe of his miserable life, and there it was that, in token of so many misfortunes, he desired to be committed to the bosom of the earth. Then addressing himself to Don Quixote and the rest of the travelers, this body, gentlemen, said he, which here you now behold, was once enlivened by a soul which heaven had enriched with the greatest part of its most valuable graces. This is the body of that Chrysostom who was unrivaled in wit, matchless in courteousness, incomparable in gracefulness, a phoenix in friendship, generous and magnificent without ostentation, prudent and grave without pride, modest without affectation, pleasant and complaisant without meanness, in a word the first in everything good, though second to none in misfortune, he loved well, and was hated, he adored, and was disdained, he begged pity of cruelty itself, he strove to move obdurate. Marble pursued the wind, made his moans to solitary deserts, was constant to ingratitude, and for the recompense of his fidelity, became a prey to death in the flower of his age through the barbarity of a shepherdess whom he strove to immortalize by his verse as these papers which are here deposited might testify had he not commanded me to sacrifice them to the flames at the same time that his body was committed to the earth should you do so cried vivaldo you would appear more cruel to them than their unhappy author consider sir tis not consistent with discretion, nor even with justice, so nicely to perform the request of the dead when it is repugnant to reason. Augustus Caesar himself would have forfeited his title to wisdom had he permitted that to have been effected which the divine Virgil had ordered by his will. Therefore, sir, now that you resign your friend's body to the grave, do not hurry thus the noble and only remains of that dear unhappy man to a worse fate. The death of oblivion what though he has doomed them to perish in the height of his resentment you are not indiscreetly to be their executioner but rather reprieve and redeem them from eternal silence that they may live and flying through the world transmit to all ages the dismal story of your friends virtue and marcella's ingratitude as a warning to others that they may avoid such tempting snares and enchanting destructions for not only to me but to all here present is well known the history of your Enamored and desperate friend, we are no strangers to the friendship that was between you as also to Marcella's cruelty which occasioned his death. Last night being informed that he was to be buried here today, moved not so much by curiosity as pity, we are come to behold with our eyes that which gave us so much trouble to hear. Therefore, in the name of all the company, Deeply affected like me, with a sense of Chrysostom's extraordinary merit and his unhappy fate and desirous to prevent such deplorable disasters for the future, I beg that you will permit me to save some of these papers, whatever you resolve to do with the rest. And so, without waiting for an answer, he stretched out his arm and took out those papers which lay next to his hand. Well, sir, said Ambrose you have found a way to make me submit and you may keep those papers, but for the rest, nothing shall make me alter my resolution of burning them. Vivaldo said no more, but being impatient to see what those papers were, which he had rescued from the flames. He opened one of them immediately and read the title of it, which was the despairing lover. That said Ambrose was the last piece my dear friend ever wrote and therefore, that you may all hear to what a sad condition his unhappy passion had reduced him, read it aloud, I beseech you, sir, while the grave is making. With all my heart, replied Vivaldo, and so the company, having the same desire, presently gathered round about him while he read the lines. The verses were well approved by all the company, and Vivaldo was about to read another paper when they were unexpectedly prevented by a kind of apparition that offered itself to their view. It was Marcella herself, who appeared at the top of the rock, at the foot of which they were digging the grave, but so beautiful that fame seemed rather to have lessened than to have magnified her charms, those who had never seen her before gazed on her with silent wonder and delight, nay, those who used to see her every day seemed no less lost in admiration than the rest. But scarce had Ambrose spied her, when, with anger and indignation in his heart, he cried out, What dost thou there, thou cruel basilisk of these mountains? Comest thou to see whether the wounds of thy unhappy victim will bleed afresh at thy presence? Or comest thou to glory in the fatal effects of thy inhumanity, like another Nero at the sight of flaming Rome? I come not here to any of those ungrateful ends, Ambrose reply Marcella, but only to clear my innocence, and shew the injustice of all those who lay their misfortunes in Chrysostom's death to my charge, therefore, I entreat you all who are here at this time to hear me a little, for I shall not need to use many words to convince people of sense of an evident truth. Heaven, you are pleased to say, has made me beautiful, and that to such a degree that you are forced, nay, as it were, compelled to love me. In spite of your endeavors to the contrary, and for the sake of that love, you say I ought to love you again. Now, though I am sensible that whatever is beautiful is lovely, I cannot conceive that what is love for being handsome should be bound to love that by which it is loved merely because it is loved. He that loves a beautiful object may happen to be ugly, and as what is ugly deserves not to be loved, it would be ridiculous to say, I love you because you are handsome, and therefore you must love me again though I am ugly. But suppose two persons of different sexes are equally handsome, it does not follow that their desires should be alike and reciprocal, for all beauties do not kindle love, some only recreate the sight, and never reach nor captivate the heart. Alas, should whatever is beautiful produce love, and enslave the mind, mankind's desires would ever run confused and wandering without being able to fix their determinate choice, for as there is an infinite number of beautiful objects, the desires would consequently be also infinite, whereas, on the contrary, I have heard that true love is still confined to one and is voluntary and unforced. This being granted, Why would you have me force my inclinations for no other reason but that you say you love me? Tell me, I beseech you, had heaven formed me as ugly as it has made me beautiful, could I justly complain of you for not loving me? Pray consider also, that I do not possess those charms by choice, such as they are, they were freely bestowed on me by heaven, and as the viper is not to be blamed for the poison with which she kills, seeing it was assigned her by nature, so I ought not to be censured for that beauty which I derive from the same cause, for beauty in a virtuous woman is but like a distant flame, or a sharp-edged sword, and only burns and wounds those who approach too near it. Honor and virtue are the ornaments of the soul, and that body that is destitute of them cannot be esteemed beautiful, though it be naturally so. If, then, honor be one of those endowments which most adorn the body, why should she that is beloved for her beauty expose herself to the loss of it, merely to gratify the inclinations of one who, for his own selfish ends, uses all the means imaginable to make her lose it? I was born free, and, that I might continue so, I retired to these solitary hills and plains, where trees are my companions and clear fountains my looking glasses. With the trees and with the waters, I communicate my thoughts and my beauty. I am a distant flame and a sword far off. Those whom I have attracted with my sight, I have undeceived with my words and if hope be the food of desire, as I never gave any encouragement to Chrysostom nor to any other, it may well be said it was rather his own obstinacy than my cruelty that shortened his life. If you tell me that his intentions were honest, and therefore ought to have been complied with, I answer, that when, at the very place where his grave is making, he discovered his passion, I told him I was resolved to live and die single, and that the earth alone should reap the fruit of my reservedness and enjoy the spoils of my beauty, and if, After all the admonitions I gave him, he would persist in his obstinate pursuit, and sail against the wind, what wonder is it he should perish in the waves of his indiscretion? Had I ever encouraged him, or amused him with ambiguous words, then I had been false, and had I gratified his wishes, I had acted contrary to my better resolves. He persisted, but I had given him a due caution, and he despaired without being hated. Now I leave you to judge whether I ought to be blamed for his sufferings. If I have deceived anyone, let him complain. If I have broke my promise to anyone, let him despair. If I encourage anyone, let him presume. If I entertain anyone, let him boast. But let no man call me cruel nor murderer until I either deceive, break my promise, encourage, or entertain him. Let him that calls me a tigress and a basilisk avoid me as a dangerous thing, and let him that calls me ungrateful give over serving me. I assure them I will never seek nor pursue them. Therefore, let none hereafter or make it their business to disturb my ease, nor strive to make me hazard among men the peace I now enjoy, which I am persuaded is not to be found with them. I have wealth enough. I neither love nor hate anyone, The innocent conversation of the neighboring shepherdesses with the care of my flocks helped me to pass away my time without either coquetting with this man or practicing arts to ensnare that other. My thoughts are limited by these mountains, and if they wander further, it is only to admire the beauty of heaven and thus by steps to raise my soul towards her original dwelling. As soon as she had said this, without waiting for any answer she left the place and ran into the thickest of the adjoining wood, leaving all that heard her charmed with her discretion as well as her beauty. However, so prevalent were the charms of the latter that some of the company, who were desperately struck, could not forbear offering to follow her without being in the least deterred by the solemn protestations which they had heard her make that very moment. But Don Quixote perceiving their design, and believing he had now a fit opportunity to exert his knight errantry, "Let no man," cried he, "of what quality or condition soever, presume to follow the fair Marcella under the penalty of incurring my displeasure; she has made it appear, by undeniable reasons, that she was not guilty of Chrysostom's death and has positively declared her firm resolution never to condescend to the desires of any of her admirers, for which reason, instead of being importuned and persecuted, she ought to be esteemed and honored by all good men as being one of the few women in the world who have lived with such a virtuous reservedness. Now, whether it were that Don Quixote's threats terrified them or that Ambrose's persuasion prevailed with them to stay and see their friend interred, None of the shepherds left the place, till the grave being made and the papers burnt, the body was deposited in the bosom of the earth, not without many tears from all the assistants. They covered the grave with a great stone, and strewed upon it many flowers and boughs, and everyone having condoled a while with his friend Ambrose, they took their leave of him and departed. Vivaldo and his companion did the like. As did also Don Quixote, who was not a person to forget himself on such occasions, he likewise bid adieu to the kind goatherds that had entertained him, and to the two travelers who desired him to go with them to Seville, assuring him there was no place in the world more fertile in adventures, every street and every corner there producing some. Don Quixote returned them thanks for their kind information, but told them he neither would nor ought to go to Seville till he had cleared all those mountains of the thieves and robbers which he heard very much infested all those parts. Thereupon the travelers, being unwilling to divert him from so good a design, took their leaves of him once more and pursued their journey, sufficiently supplied with matter to discourse on from the story of Marcella and Chrysostom and the follies of Don Quixote. The knight and his squire continued their journey and on quitting an inn, which, notwithstanding the remonstrances of Sancho, the Don, as usual, insisted was a castle, all the people in the yard, above twenty in number stood gazing at him and among the rest the host's daughter while he on his part removed not his eyes from her and ever and anon sent forth a sigh which seemed to proceed from the bottom of his heart being now both mounted and at the door of the inn he called to the host and in a grave and solemn tone of voice said to him many and great are the favors senior governor which in this your castle i have received and I am bound to be grateful to you all the days of my life. If I can make you some compensation by taking vengeance on any proud miscreant who hath insulted you, know that the duty of my profession is no other than to strengthen the weak, to revenge the injured, and to chastise the perfidious. Consider, and if your memory recall anything of this nature to recommend to me, you need only declare it, for I promise you, by the order of knighthood I have received, to procure you satisfaction and amends to your heart's desire. The host answered with the same gravity, Sir Knight, I have no need of your worship's avenging any wrong from me. I know how to take the proper revenge when any injury is done me. All I desire of your worship is to pay me for what you have had in the inn, as well for the straw and barley for your two beasts as for your supper and lodging. What? Is this an inn? exclaimed Don Quixote. I, and a very creditable one, answered the host. Hitherto, then, I have been in an error, answered Don Quixote, for in truth I took it for a castle, but since it is indeed no castle but an inn, all that you have now to do is to excuse the payment, for I cannot act contrary to the law of knights Errant, of whom I certainly know, having hitherto read nothing to the contrary, that they never pay for lodging or anything else in the inns where they are because every accommodation is legally and justly due to them in return for the insufferable hardships they endure while in quest of adventures, by night and by day, in winter and in summer, on foot and on horseback, with thirst and with hunger, with heat and with cold, subject to all the inclemencies of heaven, and to all the inconveniences of earth. I see little to my purpose in all this, answered the host, pay me what is my due, and let us have none of your stories and night territories, all I want is to get my own. Thou art a blockhead and a pitiful innkeeper, answered Don Quixote, so clapping spurs to Rosinante and brandishing his lance, he sallied out of the inn without opposition, and never turning to see whether his squire followed him, was soon a good way off. The host, seeing him go without paying, ran to seize on Sancho Panza, who said that, since his master would not pay, neither would he pay, for being squire to a knight-errant, the same rule and reason held as good for him as for his master. The innkeeper, irritated on hearing this, threatened that if he did not pay him, he should repent his obstinacy. Poor Sancho's ill luck would have it that, among the people in the inn, there were four cloth workers of Segovia, three needle makers from the fountain of Cordova, and two neighbors from the marketplace of Seville, frolicsome fellows, who, instigated and moved by the self-sane spirit, came up to Sancho, and, having dismounted him, one of them produced a blanket from the landlord's bed, into which he was immediately thrown, but, perceiving that the ceiling was too low, they determined to execute their purpose in the yard, which was bounded above only by the sky. Thither Sancho was carried, and, being placed in the middle of the blanket, they began to toss him aloft and divert themselves with him as with a dog at Shrovetide. The cries which the poor blanketed squire sent forth were so many and so loud that they reached his master's ears, who, stopping to listen attentively, believed that some new adventure was at hand, until he plainly recognized the voice of his squire, then turning the reins, he perceived the wicked sport they were making with his squire. He saw him ascend and descend through the air with so much grace and agility that, If his indignation would have suffered him, he certainly would have laughed outright. But they suspended neither their laughter nor their labor, nor did the flying Sancho cease to pour forth lamentations, mingled now with threats, now with entreaties, yet all were of no avail, and they desisted at last only from pure fatigue. They then brought him his ass, and, wrapping him in his cloak, mounted him thereon. The compassionate maid of the inn, seeing him so exhausted, the thought of helping him to a jug of water, and that it might be the cooler, she fetched it from the well. Sancho took it, and instantly began to drink, but at the first sip, finding it was water, he would proceed no further, and besought Maritorns to bring him some wine, which she did willingly, and paid for it with her own money, for it is indeed said of her that, although in that station, she had some faint traces of a Christian. When Sancho had ceased drinking, he clapped heels to his ass, and, the ingate being thrown wide open, how he went, satisfied that he had paid nothing and had carried his point, though at the expense of his usual pledge, namely his back. The landlord, it is true, retained his wallets and payment of what was due to him, but Sancho never missed them in the hurry of his departure. The innkeeper would have fastened the door well after him as soon as he saw him out, but the blanketeers would not let him, being persons of that sort that, though Don Quixote had really been one of the knights of the round table, they would not have cared two farthings for him. Sancho came up to his master so faint and dispirited that he was not able to urge his ass forward. Don Quixote, perceiving him in that condition said honest Sancho that castle wherein I am now convinced is enchanted for they who so cruelly sported with thee what could they be but phantoms and inhabitants of another world and I am confirmed in this from having found that when I stood at the pales of the yard beholding the acts of your sad tragedy I could not possibly get over them nor even a light from Rosinante so that they must certainly have held me enchanted. If I could have got over, or alighted, I would have avenged thee in such a manner as would have made those poltroons and assassins remember the jest as long as they lived, even though I should have thereby transgressed the laws of chivalry. For, as I have often told thee, they do not allow a knight to lay hand on his sword against anyone who is not so, unless it be in defense of his own life and person and in cases of urgent and extreme necessity. And I too, quoth Sancho, would have revenged myself if I had been able, night or no night, but I could not, though, in my opinion, they who diverted themselves at my expense were no hobgoblins, but men of flesh and bones, as we are, and each of them, as I heard while they were tossing me, had his proper name, so that, sir, as to your not being able to leap over the pails, nor to alight from your horse, the fault lay not in enchantment, but in something else. And what I gather clearly from all this is, that these adventures we are in quest of will in the long run bring us into so many misadventures that we shall not know which is our right foot. So that, in my poor opinion, the better and sure way would be to return to our village now that it is reaping time, and look after our business, nor go rambling thus out of the frying pan into the fire. How little dost thou know, Sancho, answered Don Quixote, of what appertains to chivalry. Peace and have patience, for the day will come when thine eyes shall witness how honourable a thing it is to follow this profession, for tell me what greater satisfaction can the world afford? Or what pleasure can be compared with that of winning a battle and triumphing over an adversary? Undoubtedly none. It may be so, answered Sancho, though I do not know it. I only know that since we have been knights, errant, or since you have been one, sir, for I have no right to reckon myself of that honorable number. We have never won any battle. We have had nothing but drubbings upon drubbings, cuffs upon cuffs. With my blanket tossing into the bargain, and that by persons enchanted on whom I cannot revenge myself, and thereby know what that pleasure of overcoming an enemy is which your worship talks of. That is what troubles me, and ought to trouble thee also, Sancho, answered Don Quixote. But henceforward I will endeavor to have ready at hand a sword made with such heart that no kind of enchantment can touch him that wears it, and perhaps fortune may put me in possession of that of Ametis. he called himself knight of the burning sword which was one of the best weapons that ever was worn by knight, for beside the virtue aforesaid it cut like a razor and no armor however strong or enchanted could withstand it such is my luck quoth sancho that though this were so and your worship should find such a sword it would be of service only to those who are dubbed knights as for the poor squires may sing sorrow fear not sancho said don quixote heaven will deal more kindly by thee the knight and his squire went on conferring thus together when don quixote perceived in the road on which they were traveling a great and thick cloud of dust coming towards them upon which he turned to sancho and said this is the day o sancho that shall manifest the good that fortune hath in store for me This is the day, I say, on which shall be proved, as at all times, the valor of my arm, and on which I shall perform exploits that will be recorded and written in the Book of Fame there to remain to all succeeding ages. Sayest thou that cloud of dust, Sancho? It is raised by a prodigious army of divers nations, who are on the march this way. If so, there must be two armies, said Sancho. For here, on this side, arises just another cloud of dust. Don Quixote turned, and seeing that it really was so, he rejoiced exceedingly, taking it for granted there were two armies coming to engage in the midst of that spacious plain. For at all hours and moments his imagination was full of the battles, enchantments, adventures, extravagances, combats, and challenges detailed in his favorite books, and in every thought word, and action he reverted to them. Now the cloud of dust he saw was raised by two great flocks of sheep going the same road from different parts, and as the dust concealed them until they came near, and Don Quixote affirmed so positively that they were armies, Sancho began to believe it, and said, Sir, what then must we do? What, replied Don Quixote, "but favor and assist the weaker side, thou must know, Sancho, that the army which marches towards us in front is led and commanded by the great Emperor Halifanferon, lord of the great island of Taprobana, this other, which marches behind us, is that of his enemy, the king of the Garamantes, pentapulon of the naked arm, for he always enters into battle with his right arm bearer. But why do these two princes bear one another so much ill will? Demanded Sancho. They hate one another. Answered Don Quixote, because this Alifamforon is a furious pagan in love with the daughter of Pentapolin who is most beautiful and also a Christian, but her father will not give her in marriage to the pagan king unless he will first renounce the religion of his false prophet Muhammad and turn Christian. By my beard said Sancho, Pentapolin is in the right and I am resolved to assist him to the utmost of my power. Therein wilt thou do thy duty, Sancho, said Don Quixote, but listen with attention whilst I give thee an account of the principal knights and the two approaching armies, and that thou mayest observe them the better, let us retire to that rising ground, whence both armies may be distinctly seen. Seeing, however, in his imagination, what did not exist, he began, with a loud voice, to say, the night thou sayest yonder with the gilded armor, who bears on his shield a lion crowned, couching at a damsel's feet is the valorous Lorcalco, lord of the silver bridge. The other, with the armor flowered with gold, who bears three crowns argent and a field azure, is the formidable Michael Colombo, grand duke of Croatia. The third, with gigantic limbs, who marches on his right, is the undaunted brand of Belish, lord of the three Arabias. He is armed with a serpent skin, and bears, instead of a shield, a gate, which fame says is one of those belonging to the temple which Samson pulled down when with his death he avenged himself upon his enemies. In this manner he went on naming sundry knights of each squadron as his fancy dictated and giving to each their arms, colors, devices, and mottos, extempore, and, without pausing, he continued thus, that squadron in the front is formed and composed of people of different nations. Here stand those who drink the sweet waters of the famous Xanthus, the mountaineers who tread the Missilian fields, those who sift the pure and fine gold dust of Arabia Felix, those who dwell along the famous and refreshing banks of the clear Thermodon, those who drain, by diverse and sundry ways the golden veins of pactolus the numidians unfaithful in their promises the persians famous for bows and arrows the parthians and medes who fight flying the arabians perpetually changing their habitations the scythians as cruel as fair the broad-lipped ethiopians and an infinity of other nations whose countenances i see and know although I cannot recollect their names. How many provinces did he name? How many nations did he enumerate, giving to each, with wonderful readiness, its peculiar attributes? Sancho Panza stood confounded at his discourse without speaking a word, and now and then he turned his head about to see whether he could discover the knights and giants his master named. But seeing none, he said, Sir, not a man, or giant, or knight, of all you have named, can I see anywhere? How sayest thou, Sancho, answered Don Quixote, hearest thou not the neighing of the steeds, the sound of the trumpets, and the rattling of the drums? I hear nothing, answered Sancho, but the bleating of sheep and lambs, and so it was, for now the two flocks were come very near them. Thy fears, Sancho, said Don Quixote, prevent thee from hearing or seeing aright, for one effect of fear is to disturb the senses and make things not to appear what they really are, and if thou art so much afraid, retire and leave me alone, for with my single arm I shall ensure victory to that side which I favor with my assistance, then, clapping spurs to Rosinante and setting his lance in his rest, he darted down the hillock like lightning, Sancho cried out to him, Hold, Senor Don Quixote, come back. They are only lambs and sheep you are going to encounter. Pray come back. What madness is this? There is neither giant, nor knight, nor horses, nor arms, nor shields quartered or entire, nor true azures, nor devices. What are you doing, sir? Notwithstanding all this, Don Quixote turned not again, but still went on, crying aloud, O Knights, you that follow and fight under the banner of the valiant Emperor Pentapolin of the Naked Arm, follow me all, and you shall see with how much ease I revenge him on his enemy Alephanforon of Tapurbana. With these words he rushed into the midst of the squadron of sheep, as courageously and intrepidly as if in good earnest he was engaging his mortal enemies. The shepherds and herdsmen who came with the flocks called out to him to desist, but seeing it was to no purpose, they unbuckled their slings and began to salute his ears with a shower of stones. Don Quixote cared not for the stones, but, galloping about on all sides, cried out, Where art thou, proud Elephanferon? Present thyself before me, I am a single knight, desirous to prove thy valour hand to hand, and to punish thee with the loss of life for the wrong thou dost to the valiant Pentapolin Garamanta. At that instant a large stone struck him with such violence that he believed himself either slain or sorely wounded, and remembering some balsam which he had, he pulled out the cruse, and applying it to his mouth, began to swallow some of the liquor, but before he could take what he thought sufficient, another hit him full on the hand and dashed the cruse to pieces carrying off three or four of his teeth by the way, and grievously bruising two of his fingers. Such was the first blow, and such the second, that the poor knight fell from his horse to the ground. The shepherds ran to him, and verily believed they had killed him, whereupon in all haste they collected their flock, took up their dead, which were about seven, and marched off without farther inquiry. All this while Sancho stood upon the hillock, beholding his master's actions, tearing his beard, and cursing the unfortunate hour and moment that ever he knew him. But seeing him fall into the ground and the shepherds gone off, he descended from the hillock and, running to him, found him in a very ill plight, though not quite bereaved of sense, and said to him, Did I not beg you, Señor Don Quixote, to come back? For those you went to attack were a flock of sheep and not an army of men? How easily, replied Don Quixote, can that thief of an enchanter, my enemy, transform things or make them invisible? However, do one thing, Sancho, for my sake, to undeceive thyself, and see the truth of what I tell thee, melt thy ass, and follow them fair and softly, and thou wilt find that, When they are got a little farther off, they will return to their first form, and, ceasing to be sheep, will become men, proper and tall, as I described them at first. But do not go now, for I want thy assistance, come hither to me, and see how many of my teeth are deficient, for it seems to me that I have not one left in my head. He now raised himself up and placing his left hand on his mouth to prevent the remainder of his teeth from falling out, with the other he laid hold on Rosinante's bridle who had not stirred from his master's side, such was his fidelity, and went towards his squire who stood leaning with his breast upon the ass and his cheek reclining upon his hand in the posture of a man overwhelmed with thought. Don Quixote, seeing him thus, and to all appearance so melancholy, said to him, Know, Sancho, that one man is no more than another, only inasmuch as he does more than another. So do not afflict thyself for the mischances that befall me, since thou hast no share in them. How? No share in them, answered Sancho, peradventure he they tossed in a blanket yesterday was not my father's son, and the wallets I have lost today, with all my movables, belong to somebody else? What? Are the wallets lost? Quoth Don Quixote. Yes, they are, answered Sancho. Then we have nothing to eat today, replied Don Quixote. It would be so, answered Sancho, if these fields did not produce those herds which your worship says you know and with which unlucky knights errant like your worship are used to supply such wants. Nevertheless, said Don Quixote, at this time I would rather have a slice of bread and a couple of heads of salt pilchards than all the herbs described by Dioscorides, though commented upon by Dr. Laguna himself. But, good Sancho, get upon thy ass, and follow me, for God, who provides for all, will not desert us, since he neglects neither the birds of the air, the beasts of the earth, nor the fish of the waters more especially being engaged as we are in his service. Your worship, said Sancho, would make a better preacher than a knight-errant. Sancho, said Don Quixote, the knowledge of knights-errant must be universal. There have been knights-errant in times past who would make sermons or harangues on the king's highway as successfully as if they had taken their degrees in the University of Paris whence it may be inferred that the lance never blunted the pen, nor the pen the lance. Well, be it as your worship says, answered Sancho, but let us be gone hence, and endeavor to get a lodging tonight, and pray God it be where there are neither blankets or blanket heavers, hobgoblins, or enchanted moors.